Great. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm pleased to um, uh, get the chance to come up uh, down here, and it was, uh, it's always good to see Lars and to come to Oxford. It's great. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of background uh, where I'm coming from, and I've been at the University of York now for a couple of years, and before that was uh, at the University of Alberta in Canada, uh, and um, worked there in the Department of Educational Psychology, and before that worked as an educational psychologist for uh, a few years in uh, Canada and also a bit in the UK and in Australia. Um, and I'm quite interested in this idea of selection of teachers and using research that's been done in educational psychology to inform some of the choices we make uh, when we're looking at uh, personnel selection in this particular field. So there's uh, some key points that I want to bring out today. And I hope that the first one is, is not particularly contentious, the idea that teachers provide a strong influence on student outcomes. Um, but there's lots of variability in the degree of influence that teachers have. And we'll look at some of the research that's been done in that area and talk about uh, the notion that uh, the people you hire are really important for education and for outcomes for students and for society as a whole. Um, the second point is that research in theory and educational psychology illuminates some of the processes that are underlying teaching effectiveness. But third, that the moving from theory to practice is really challenging and that it's really difficult to take the theory that's been done in the field of teacher effectiveness or uh, motivation, which is my particular area, and it's challenging uh, because uh, there are certain obstacles that are put in the way between uh, carrying out particular research and uh, putting that into actual practice, but I think that the challenges are worth addressing. And this idea of predicting performance or effectiveness of teachers has been called the holy grail of, of selection research because it's really challenging to do, and it's not something that's been addressed very effectively with previous uh, research or practice. So what we're going to be talking about today is applying theory to practice. And for the most part, researchers in educational psychology, and I use that term uh, to talk about uh, psychological research conducted in education settings. But for the most part, uh, educational psychology research have focused on theory building and testing. So my own research, for example, for the last 10 years, I've been looking at the motivation beliefs of adolescents and of teachers, uh, and I've been looking at self-efficacy and self-determination theory aspects of that, mindset a little bit, and achievement goal theory. Uh, and that's, for the most part, what researchers in motivation theory have been looking at in, in student and teacher motivation. But educational practitioners, what they're looking for is application of these theories, or at least application that's practical and useful and that has uh, cash value, as William James said. So they're looking at predicting behavior, which is essentially what teacher selection is. We want to predict those who are going to be most effective in their behaviors of teaching. And we want to look at, and they want to look at designing interventions. They want to look at things that might improve the current uh, a cohort of teachers, which might be through professional development or professional learning. So we'll start by looking at the teachers' influences and how they influence educational outcomes. And it's certainly true that the main driver of variation, at least a lot of research done primarily in the United States and a little bit in, um, in Germany as well, uh, by educational economists, but the main driver of variation in student learning is the quality of the teachers. Uh, so economists in the U.S. and in Europe have focused on, on key factors to improve education. 
and a number of studies have shown the stark difference in student outcomes according to teacher input. So the example that was given by Barbara and Murshed was that if two average eight-year-old students were given different teachers, one of them a high performer and the other a low performer, the student's performance diverged by more than 50 percentile points in three years. And the comparison they give is to an intervention which is common and, and commonly discussed, uh, which is reducing class size. Uh, reducing class size, a very expensive intervention, would only affect performance by about 8 percentile points in comparison. So teacher effectiveness varies dramatically, even within individual schools. And there's a lot of divergence, and we'll, we'll look at some of the variance or variation in, in teacher effectiveness over time. Um, John Hattie is um, a researcher in, uh, now in Mal University of Melbourne, uh, was in uh, New Zealand and I think a, a few other places, but he uh, conducted what might be called a super meta-analysis um, a few years back. He looked at 800 different meta-analyses and looked at some of the effect sizes of educational interventions. And he found that school, of course, home and student were all uh, important in terms of influencing student outcomes. But he found that the most important uh, student outcome or uh, influence on student outcome was teacher characteristics. And for his purposes, when he's talking about effect sizes and, and how to uh, describe them, for educational outcomes, he talks about 0.2 as a small effect size, medium is 0.4, and large is 0.6. And, uh, but even small effect sizes can be important if you have a large population and, and if the cost of intervention is moderate. So clear examples come from medicine, for example, where the effect size of taking a low dose of aspirin to prevent heart attack was, was very low, but 0.07, which translates to, uh, into 34 out of 1,000 patients avoiding heart attacks by taking a low dose of aspirin regularly. So even a relatively modest effect size, like school or home, can be important if you apply them to a large population and if the intervention is relatively inexpensive. So the teacher characteristics, we're going to break this down a little bit further in a minute, but the component of teacher includes things like teacher engagement, expectations, openness, personality, and some of the what might be called psychological characteristics. Let's just look a little bit further at teacher effects. Um, for example, um, Hattie's um, research, if, if you look at um, the impact of having a teacher at the 25th percentile is compared to the 75th percentile of the quality distribution. We'll talk about what quality distribution might be. Um, it means a learning gain of roughly 0.2 standard deviations in a single year for students in math or language skills. And the magnitude of such an effect is large, both relative to typical measures of, for example, income <coughs> achievement gaps, or for, again, class size reduction. So let's look specifically at some of the uh, teacher components that might contribute to student achievement. So we know that teacher training has a small but moderate effect size, or small but not insignificant effect size on uh, student achievement. <coughs> Subject matter knowledge, again, is relatively small. But the two stronger effect sizes from Hattie's research are what might be called non-cognitive variables or psychological characteristics like teachers' expectations, so soft characteristics perhaps, or teacher-student relationships. And he finds that in general, the teacher training and teacher uh, subject matter knowledge might be important in terms of student outcomes, but the things that are really important were the expectations that teacher held and the teacher-student relationships. So let's look at what happens to teacher effectiveness over time. 
And we know that teachers vary widely in their ability to improve student achievement and that the differences have a substantial impact on standardized test outcomes. But let's look at what happens to beginning teachers' effectiveness over time. Well, there's good news and bad news. Let's look at the good news. Um, this is research done by, uh, in the United States by Atterbury, who um, titled her paper, Do First Impressions Matter? And they looked at early career uh, teacher effectiveness. What they did was they traced the effectiveness of uh, all the brand new teachers in New York City uh, for a period of up to six or seven years. But they followed them from the very beginning, so they followed one cohort over time. They found that an ELA is English Language Arts and Math. Um, they found that in general, their study is the heavy black line, and then these other lines are other studies. These are years of experience. You can see that overall, um, in the, the mean impact, the mean effect was that teachers improved over time. So um, overall, teachers got better with experience. And that's not a surprise. We know that teachers who start are perhaps at their um, most vulnerable in terms of effectiveness stage, and that generally teachers get better with experience. And that's one of the reasons why it's a real loss when people drop out of the teaching profession in the first few years of, of their studies because it's difficult to get people who can replace them who are at the same level of experience and effectiveness. So replacing somebody with three or four years of experience with somebody who's brand new usually means a, a mean loss or ineffectiveness. Not all the time, and of course there's variation. But in general, we know that there is a pattern of increasing effectiveness over time. Uh, but it's not quite so clear as that, because when you look at things like motivation beliefs or self-efficacy in this study, uh, this is a study that looked at, it was cross-sectional, but took a large sample of teachers and looked at how their motivation beliefs changed over a longer period of time, over a career, but again, cross-sectionally. So this isn't following teachers for 45 years, but it's rather measuring teachers' self-efficacy over time. This study found that uh, three kinds of self-efficacy um, increased in a linear fashion, essentially, for the first 15 or 20 years, peaked, and then declined in the latter stage of the career. And maybe that's not surprising, but it's not a completely linear relationship between years of experience and effectiveness, or at least it may not be. In terms of motivation beliefs, um, there's a deterioration, which does not mean that um, effectiveness follows the same pattern. And I don't know if that's been tracked before, but motivation beliefs may not um, uh, increase in a linear fashion um, uh, over time. Okay, so that's the okay news. So we know that the good news is that people get better in teaching. That's great. Um, maybe it doesn't continue to increase. We're not really sure. Motivation may not, may decline over time. But let's look at maybe the bad news. And the bad news is that teachers' relative effectiveness doesn't change very much. So in that study by Atterbury, this is what they found in terms of, again, this time they've reversed it for some reason, math and English language arts. They divided their sample, their cohort of brand new New York City teachers, starting at year zero and followed them over five years, they found that the quintiles, so they created five groups of value-added achievement, they found that the quintiles tended to stay the same. So that means that a teacher who started off in the lower quintile, the lower fifth of the group, in terms of performance, which was 
um, measured as students' value-added achievement um, controlling for student SES and parent education levels and so forth, they found that for the most part the lowest um, group of teachers stayed in the lowest group and the highest group of teachers stayed in the highest group over time. So that means that the relative effectiveness doesn't really seem to change very much, at least in the extremes. They saw a lot more movement in these middle quintiles where teachers who were in the, in the middle of the curve tended to move around a little bit more. But the majority, 62% of teachers in the initially lowest quintile in math, um, ultimately showed up in, well, the bottom two quintiles at the end of their fifth year. About 73% of the top performing teachers, so those who were initially measured at the very top, um, tended to stay in that top quintile over their five-year period. And so that means that the most effective tend to stay the most effective and the least effective tend to stay the least effective. So even though we might accept that teachers in general increase in their effectiveness in their first five years, ten years perhaps of experience, and I don't know if it's been tracked over ten years, um, there's a problem in that those who are lower performing tend to stay in the lower performing group. Perhaps even worse news is that teacher effects are much stronger in low SES than high SES schools. So the variation of the teacher effect is even greater in the lowest SES schools. Because in a, uh, an affluent, well-supported school, um, the teacher effect is important, but it's not as important as in a school where a teacher may be the only source of educational input for students um, where perhaps the, uh, the social opportunities and cultural opportunities are not as great. So in low SES schools, it matters more which teacher a student gets. You may remember if you, were, if you had children who were in school and sometimes they got great teachers, sometimes they got, uh, usually they got teachers in the middle of the bell curve and sometimes they got perhaps what you might have considered a, a, a less effective teacher. Um, probably um, your child uh, was able to overcome that background and was able to, um, to move on from that. But it can be really difficult because the, the effects can be long-lasting. We'll look at some of those effects in a minute. So in this study by Nye, um, with, where they, they looked at the size of teacher effects, they again found that the effects were much stronger in the lower SES schools. They looked at high and low SES schools and found that the between-classroom-within-schools variance is larger in low SES schools, and the proportion of total variance in student achievement attributed to teachers um, was higher, and so it was um, uh, student achievement variance was, was related to the teacher effects. So what's the economic impact of teacher quality? This is something that's really been looked at in the last uh, five years, it seems, and in the last couple of years, when I look at um, the kinds of people that uh, universities are looking for in education departments. They're often looking for educational economists because there's a real economic impact of teacher quality. And teaching isn't just about the, um, the effect of, uh, of, of, of uh, teaching and, and learning on students, but it's also about the effect of teaching and learning on society as a whole. And choosing a teacher is a really big investment. So when you choose a teacher, it's uh, been called a, a well, it's, it's almost a two million pound decision. If you look at something like 30 years, uh, let's say 50,000 uh, pounds over uh, plus benefits, it's a lot of money that's invested in each person. Uh, Value-added analysis aims to isolate the causal effects that teachers have on student achievement by comparing how well their students perform on end-of-year tests relative to similar students taught by other teachers. And so value-added analysis looks at, at the economic impact of teacher quality. 
the economic impact of low quality and high quality teaching is actually really immense. The effects of having a teacher who's modestly more effective than another teacher, one standard deviation difference, produces measurable differences in student lifetime earnings. The estimates from Achetti and from Hanishek and Rivkin, who uh, I believe are uh, at Stanford University um, educational economists, um, they found that um, replacing a teacher whose value added is in the bottom 5% with an average teacher would increase students' cumulative lifetime income by a total of $1.4 million per classroom taught. Uh, the effect is smaller but still significant from improving selection overall so that fewer teachers who end up in the bottom 5% are selected. So even modest improvements in selection are rewarded for individual students and for economic um, implications for classrooms and school uh, groups of students. Um, Chetty and colleagues suggest that their evidence confirms that the students of, of high-value-added teacher benefit not just by scoring higher on math and reading but also economically in terms of lifetime income. So in the UK context, even modest improvement when you're selecting 39,000 people for jobs makes a significant and noticeable difference to student and social outcomes for many years. In the, in the UK approximately this year, 2013-2014, there were about 80,000 applicants for about 40,000 positions for training. Um, and I'm, I don't know how many of those 40,000 are then placed into jobs in this country, but for the most part, that's the, the ratio of applicants to, um, to, can, uh, to, to trainees in the various kinds of initial teacher training programs. So let's look at this idea of improving school systems by choosing the right people to become teachers. Uh, Barbara and Morshed said that the quality of an education system cannot exceed the quality of its teachers. So let's look at the research in educational psychology. So for the last few minutes, I've talked about this idea that teachers make an impact on students. Of course, we know that. There's an economic impact. There's a real difference. There's variation or variability in how effective teachers are. Um, and it seems that teachers tend to stay in their relative effectiveness groups over time, or at least over the first five or six years. There's been quite a lot of research done in education psychology and, and in educational psychology that talks about teacher effectiveness. Mostly, um, I'm a motivation researcher. I mostly look at within-person factors that influence various kinds of behavior. Uh, most of my research has studied self-efficacy, uh, collective efficacy, and, and teacher-student relationships. So what do we know about the factors from educational psychology that influence teacher effectiveness? Well, we certainly know that teacher-student interactions strongly influence student achievement. Uh, we know that teacher-student interactions influence teacher um, motivation as well. So for example, here's a study that was done a couple of years ago and using um, self-determination theory where we have basic psychological needs of autonomy, competence, and relatedness, we see that relatedness to peers has some impact on enjoyment of teaching and, um, in fact, negative uh, impact on engagement. But relatedness to students is a, is a key variable. So teachers' um, enthusiasm for connecting or, or relating to students has a strong influence on their engagement, on the negative emotion of anger, and on the positive emotion of enjoyment. So overall, we know that that relationship with students has important influences for, for teachers, at least in their self-report um, uh, engagement and emotions about teaching. But we also know that teacher-student relationships influence student achievement. 
Um, some of you might be familiar with uh, uh, Hamry and Pianta's, Bob Pianta and Bridget Hamry at the University of Virginia. They've created a classroom observation tool called the class. And they've, uh, I know Lars has used it in secondary settings. And it's, um, it's one uh, quite standardized, quite useful tool that looks at, at the behaviors of teachers and how it relates to various student outcomes. Um, Alan and uh, his colleagues looked at the influence of emotional support particularly on actual um, uh, student achievement and found that of these three clusters, emotional support, classroom organization, and instructional support, they found that emotional support, and that's a form of, of connection with, with students, um, that even after accounting for previous test performance, um, Emotional support predicted student performance on end-of-year standardized achievement tests. So classrooms that were characterized by a positive emotional climate and engaged teacher and uh, high teacher-student interactions um, uh, resulted or was associated with, rather, um, uh, high le higher levels of student performance. We know that teacher self-efficacy, confidence teachers have in their ability to manage classrooms, to engage students, to... Uh, instruct in an effective way uh, is related to positive outcomes for teachers and students. Um, all I want you to look at here is this idea that self-efficacy for teaching uh, and, and strategic teaching uh, resulted or, or was associated with higher levels of job commitment and lower levels of quitting intention. So we know that motivation variables can be related to teacher outcomes and also to student outcomes. The problem with most of the research that has been done in motivation in other fields is that most of the research that looks at teacher psychological characteristics, which are sometimes called non-cognitive characteristics or attributes, they examine self-report psychological attributes and they pair them with self-report outcomes. And that's usually the case. When we looked at a lot of self-efficacy research that was done over this time period, 98 to 2009, there was a great increase in studies that was fantastic, uh, more international studies and so on, but we found that less than 1% of the studies um, related teacher self-efficacy to outcomes that were student level and, let's say, objective. And so most of the studies, again, almost 99% or more than 99%, did not look at... Um, actual student outcomes that were measured, uh, let's say, objectively or externally. And most of the studies were self-report outcomes. So we followed it up a bit and looked at different time period, and we did a meta-analysis of research that looked at teachers' psychological characteristics and objective effectiveness. And it's slightly suspect term, objective effectiveness. But what we did, we looked at uh, external um, observations of teacher uh, behavior, and we looked at value-added, or not value-added, we looked at student achievement increases. Uh, and we examined a lot of um, gray literature, so dissertations, theses, conference reports, and unpublished work that was solicited from authors because uh, we couldn't find very many studies that actually linked psychological characteristics to objective measures of effectiveness. Um, what we found, and our questions were, what's the strength of the relationship uh, between psychological characteristics and so, uh, such as self-efficacy and personality? We ended up focusing on those two variables because almost all of the, or for the most part, we could get, um, we got most studies that looked at self-efficacy and some that looked at various kinds of personality. The personality, if you're uh, into personality theory, were either big five personality theory or 
um, perhaps a less respected uh, personality measure, but the uh, MBTI, or the Myers-Briggs Type Inventory, which is sometimes uh, favored in some education settings. But So self-efficacy measures and personality, we looked at how they linked to uh, teaching effectiveness. And we then looked at whether the relationship between psychological characteristics and outcomes was moderated by the type of psychological characteristics. So essentially, is there a difference in personality and uh, versus uh, uh, teaching uh, self-efficacy? And what we found was that, and so teacher performance is um, objective or observed teacher performance, so a teaching that's observed by... Uh, somebody other than the teacher, and that is rated on some kind of scale with some kind of numerical value. Student achievement was some kind of reported uh, student achievement, maybe not value-added, so it might not have controlled for um, the factors that in, in the best research um, are controlled for, like uh, SES and previous achievement and so forth, but we took what we could get in this case. We found that the effect size for personality on teacher performance was um, significant but modest, uh, so an R of 0 0.08, which is uh, about 0.16 in, in Cohen's D if you're looking at different effect sizes. And we found that the, um, the effect of self-efficacy or the relationship between teacher performance and self-efficacy was actually respectable at 0.29 and equals about 0.6 if you convert it to um, uh, Cohen's D uh, and with personality about 0.16. So in general, when you look at kind of the psychological characteristics, you can make a case that, yeah, there's an effect of personality on, on um, external teaching effectiveness, and you can make an, a, a case that, yeah, teacher self-efficacy seems to have uh, a relationship with uh, teacher performance and to a lesser extent with, with student achievement. But there is a problem when you try to use measures of self-efficacy or personality perhaps and looking at teaching effectiveness. And the problem is that, yeah, there's a relationship between non-cognitive attributes and mostly self-report teaching behaviors, sometimes external. But can these self-report or explicit measures be used in high-stakes selection procedures? So we know that there are certain things that relate with teachers that they do and what they feel and believe and their, their uh, characteristics that are uh, soft or non-cognitive, but it's really difficult to make the next step from taking that research into something that is actually useful for predicting teacher success or for selecting teachers. So the real question is, how can you select the right people to become teachers? Let's look at the selection procedures that are used um, uh, around the world, and, and we'll look at various places. So the top performing school systems have more effective mechanisms for selecting people for teacher training than do the lower performing systems. Um, Barber and Moorshed point to the examples of Finland, Hong Kong, and Singapore, where the selection process filters out in some cases more than 95% of applicants, and they tend to have great school systems and so on. Um, it's not quite as clear-cut as that, um, I know Lars has at some point spent time in Finland. Um, I was in uh, Finland last uh, year, I think it was, a year ago maybe. Um, I think it was last spring. And I was meeting with people for a project and, and also meeting with somebody about um, their teacher selection procedures. And so, of course, I wanted to know, you know, what is your secret? You have this great system where you have such high-performing teachers. It's fantastic. Finland is amazing, isn't it? Um, and so I talked to the person and looked at their selection procedure. They get lots and lots of applicants, of course. They get 20 or 50 or whatever it is um, for every place that they're able to give in their training program. And they look at academic performance, and it has to be high. And then they have a, a test of psychological characteristics. 
And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And, you know, please tell me about it. And what it was, was a test from Canada, which I thought, oh, no, that's bad, um, from the 1970s that has largely not been validated and is really not seen anywhere else and that they use because it gives them some kind of numerical output and they don't really have to test it because it's, the whole system kind of works. And so they get a score and that's one of their filtering mechanisms. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's, it's not, and they, re, they realize and they're interested in, in coming up with uh, better ways of selecting people because they, they realize that it wasn't the very uh, most effective or the, uh, the best um, validity in terms of uh, the outcomes. Well, the outcomes are strong, but the process wasn't very defensible. Uh, uh, in the UK, Martin Thompson, chair of the National Association of School-Based Teacher Trainers, uh, warned that only a small proportion of unsuitable candidates would be identified through the personality tests, uh, and, and he expressed some concern about the move um, that was discussed by various groups in the UK, especially in 2012, to looking at uh, personality and psychological characteristics. Of course, the other point that he doesn't make is that um, removing or, or, or selecting a group and, and, and looking at the fact that only a small proportion of unsuitable candidates would be identified um, is really important when you have 40,000 people that you're selecting for training every year. So even if you're looking at a small proportion of 40,000 people, um, it might be a worthwhile enterprise. So school systems usually follow one of three paths for selecting teachers. In some places like Australia, Canada, the US, the selection process is done after training. So in many Canadian, Australian universities uh, and, and some American universities, um, there's unregulated, largely unregulated access to training programs in universities. Lots of people get in and the filtering happens after the training. So the, the filtering or the selection happens uh, at the point of hiring. In some places, to some extent in the UK, but certainly in Finland, Hong Kong and Singapore, um, people are selected before they start their training and those training places are limited and that's where the filtering actually or the selecting actually happens at the entry to training. And so the training program in the UK, there's 39,000 places, but the filtering, most of the filtering takes place before that. There's a third path, which was termed the economist's choice. Steiger and Rockoff um, suggested that this would be the most effective way of doing things. Hire lots of people and then retain only a few. Get rid of half or more after, um, after year one, for example, or after three to five years, retain the highest performers and fire the rest. Um, that's not palatable to everybody, though, um, especially those who don't get uh, kept on, probably, um, and it's a, a little bit disruptive to the system, perhaps, but that was their suggestion, or they talked about that as an idea of, of how to actually um, identify the best teachers, and that's probably the case. Um, this might also be known as the new labor plan, because um, you may have read this from Tristram Hunt uh, about a month ago, um, the idea that teachers would have to be licensed every few years, um, and that uh, allow the worst ones to be sacked while other ones would receive more training and development. So that's a little bit along the lines of uh, filtering after three to five years. Uh, but at this point, that's not a plan that has been put into um, uh, place. So how do you select the perfect teacher? Is it an impossible task? So this is what people want, right? They want everything. Um, and I won't go through all the details, but requirements for the perfect teacher are a heart of gold, uh, flexibility, um, and lots of uh, healthy traits and, and successful traits or whatever you're uh, looking for. But there's lots of things that, of course, we're looking for. Or perhaps if you watched um, the television series last year, I think, up in Yorkshire, um, you might have seen 
Mr. Mitchell and his crew in educating Yorkshire. And they were, they were you know, great teachers in um, somewhat hard conditions and, and did very well for the most part. Um, but sometimes you don't get that and you get... Um, this is one of the world's greatest movies. Uh, Cameron Diaz in Bad Teacher. I'm sure most of you have seen it. Um, winner of the Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, wasn't really, but <laughs> it's a... It was an interesting um, uh, uh, description of a teacher who struggled in uh, teaching and, and uh, didn't have very good uh, output and outcomes and so forth for her students. But it was an interesting movie. So what should be included in a filtering system? Well, um, of course we think academic record's important, but actually it has low correlation with teaching effectiveness. Literacy and numeracy skills don't have a very strong correlation with effectiveness. Uh, communication skills are... Um, Surprisingly, uh, a large meta-analysis done a couple of years ago looked at verbal ability and communication skills and found a, an effect size of about 0.02. Uh, so the relationship was really weak with teaching effectiveness, in spite of um, the, the idea, the, the uh, anecdotal evidence that we might have that communication skills are really important for teachers. University attended has little influence on, on um, Effectiveness and advanced degrees don't really seem to make much difference in terms of long-term student effectiveness. So selection hasn't changed very much, and it's not um, very evidence-based. So again, there's about 40,000 places in ITT, or initial teacher training in the UK. And the selection usually follows the same pattern at whatever the place is. A review of background qualifications, a look at kind of what might be called cognitive factors, so a study of, of subject knowledge, numeracy and literacy skills, um, and there's an evaluation of non-cognitive factors that's usually done by interview or maybe some group exercise or uh, perhaps a bit of a, a teaching demonstration. But there's not a lot of research on the effectiveness of the, of the, trait, of the uh, teacher selection procedures. So what kind of candidates are chosen in the UK? Well, this is, um, and Teach First says that they're choosing high quality or high caliber candidates for training. Uh, Premier Plus is from the Department for Education. It's a way of attracting um, uh, prospective teachers in, in particular subject areas. We want the most talented people to become teachers. We're offering our Premier Plus service to those with first class or two one degree in physics and other subjects, modern foreign languages and so forth. Um, the National College for Teaching Leadership say children deserve excellent teachers and today's statistics show the professions attracting more of the country's top tier graduates uh, Charlie Taylor said a year ago and it's uh, true that two thirds apparently of, of postgraduate trainees in the UK uh, a couple of years ago had a first or a 2-1 degree and so teachers are increasingly showing higher levels of cognitive skill the question is, is that enough? So there's a real call for measuring not just those cognitive skills and looking at, at performance in undergraduate degrees, but looking at non-cognitive factors. The House of Commons Education Committee said the new Ofsted framework reinforces the need for rigorous selection and evidence of the recruitment of high-quality trainees. We are working to ensure that ITT providers use the best methods to assess non-cognitive skills as part of selection for entry onto ITT courses. That's true in Scotland. Donaldson Report 2010 looked at this idea that we need more consistent attention to interpersonal skills. So there's a, a realization that just looking at the cognitive skills or academic performance isn't enough. Um, House of Commons Education Committee said, we welcome the concept of a test in interpersonal skills. Um, 
we do realize that designing and testifying proxies for teaching aptitude possesses a significant or poses a significant challenge. However, other professions and organizations have overcome similar challenges. So these are the kind of non-cognitive measures that are currently available and that have been recommended for use by the uh, National College of Teaching and Leadership. And these are based on whoops, these are based on personality tests, so big five personality tests and other kinds of personality tests, so criterion partnership, etc. And these are some of the examples of the kinds of tests that are the items or the content of these tests. So for example, rate the following from very strongly disagree to very strongly agree. I solve problems. I'm in control of my own future. I'm tolerant. Please select the statement that's most like you. I'm good at understanding why people do things. People say I make a good first impression. So there's a very strong opportunity for self-presentation bias or social desirability bias. Uh, and in a high-stakes selection procedure, it's inevitable, that, of course, that um, candidates are going to try to manage the impressions that they're giving. Um, impression management is a goal-directed conscious or unconscious process in which people attempt to influence the perceptions that other people have about them. And that's an inevitable part of high-stakes assessment. So, oh, yeah, this is our first attempt at a, a, an inexpensive personality test for teacher selection. It's like, your personality based on how you eat corn. <laughs> Left to right, you're analytical, rational, and dislike surprises. Up and down, you're spontaneous, creative, and enjoy new experiences. <laughs> but it wasn't very reliable, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so, why create tools, uh, selection tools for ITT? Well, we know that the, um, the fundamental goal of selection is to make accurate predictions about a person's job performance, essentially, based on a limited set of predictors. Um, how can theory guide us? Well, we know that motivation theory um, predicts uh, and the various variables predict teacher and student engagement, but we have a really hard time moving from theory to practice in this regard. Are there any innovative methods that might be adopted for education? We think yes. And what should be assessed? Um, because there's a, an ongoing educational uh, belief that teachers or teaching is kind of magical, that it's impossible to identify what the characteristics are of teachers that actually lead to effectiveness. It's certainly true that if you think back of effective teachers, it's sometimes hard to find commonalities between those who are effective. You have people with completely different personalities and skills, perhaps. Um, but there are some factors that seem to be uh, running through most effective teachers, and those might include teacher-student relationships and a few of the other uh, non-cognitive factors that we talked about. So we're proposing and using and creating right now situational judgment tests. And, and situational judgment tests aren't new. They're um, a type of methodology that's been used in uh, work selection and in trainee selection in the UK and other places, especially in the last five years, but even previous to that in business settings. Um, so in a SJT, each situation is accompanied by a number of different uh, responses that can be applied to the situation, and the applicant is asked to identify the most or least effective responses. Um, and SJTs are, are, are measure implicit traits, and so um, when we look at the um, personality tests that are on the market, for example, we look at explicit measures of personality. Please rate yourself on these explicit traits. Um, and we'll talk about this idea of implicit trait measurement um, on SGTs in just a second. So why use situational judgment tests to select teachers? Well, first of all, if you didn't have to make selection decisions, it would be fine. But you often have to make selection decisions about a large group of people. 
Interviews can be impractical if you have a large pool of applicants, and it can be um, very expensive and time-consuming. So initial screening for academic performance uh, only may not be best practice. So yes, we want to know about the academic performance of the candidates for teacher training, uh, but teaching is inherently social, and we want to know more than that. We want to know about personality and interpersonal skills, and we want to know about some of the non-cognitive factors that might influence eventual effectiveness. Um, so SJTs don't replace interviews, but can be used as a screening tool uh, for interview from a, uh, to, to select for interview from a large pool. Let's look at what's been done with SJTs, and I'll give you some examples of them in a minute. Outside of business, and a lot's been done in business, but in dentistry, there's evidence of reliable and correlated with uh, SJT, where reliable and correlated with professional interviews. So in dentistry, Patterson, Fiona Patterson at, at Cambridge and Work Psychology Group. Um, found that they, they developed and tested a proof-of-concept SJT to measure non-cognitive attributes essential to success in dentistry. Uh, results from their pilot were encouraging. They found that the SJT showed adequate reliability and the scores showed normal distribution, um, suggesting effectiveness in differentiating among candidates. Um, to select um, those who are studying law postgraduate in the United States, um, evidence for strong prediction of lawyer performance, fewer intergroup differences, which is uh, important, especially in contexts where uh, intergroup differences can be a, a, a social justice issue. And they found that SJTs um, had fewer intergroup differences and were strong predictors of effectiveness and, and were more predictive than the LSAT and um, uh, university GPA. There's been a little bit of research done in the U.S. and U.K. by uh, Joe Elliott from Durham, um, Steve Stemmler, and, and Rob, uh, Bob Sternberg. And they created an initial uh, SJT for not selecting teachers, but for looking at differences between experts and novices. But most of the research has been done in medicine in the U.K. And this is an example from the foundation program. And in medicine in the UK, um, students study at the undergraduate level typically for five or six years and then uh, are placed uh, or selected into the next level of training, which is foundation year training. And the selection at that stage is competitive. Um, and this, uh, these are the two um, uh, areas that are looked at, educational performance, which looks at undergraduate performance and any research components and a few other things. And the second part is looking at non-cognitive skills, look, using situational judgment tests. And the SJT then is, is sat by all students who are moving into the uh, junior doctor years as, uh, at the foundation year uh, level. And um, uh, again, the scores are given and so forth. And so that's been used and found. Uh, the research that's been done on the predictiveness of the SJTs at this level have shown that the SJTs have been more predictive than interviews and some of the other factors uh, looking at effectiveness as uh, junior doctors in the foundation year one and uh, I think foundation year two as well. So the advantages of SJTs are that they're highly contextualized. So they're built in a particular context, and in this case in a, a school context, high levels of predictive validity. Um, so this context specific, uh, specificity means that you're able to really contextualize it in a context and you're able to uh, specify uh, the factors that you're looking for in the SJT and, and make sure that they're, um, they're related with the kinds of teaching environments and situations that um, new teachers might come across. 
they have high facility. Candidates like them so that they're um, pleased with the selection process and feel that they're fair. And so there are fewer intergroup differences and they're harder to fake than personality tests. So the social desirability bias is less of an, um, an influence on the outcomes. And so implicit measures that use judgment are more resistant to faking than explicit measures based on the big five. Some disadvantages are that um, personality tests are useful because they look at traits that are meant to generalize across settings. Um, situational judgment tests can be very uh, situation specific. So we've developed uh, situational judgment tests for secondary school teachers, but it doesn't work very well or it doesn't translate very well to uh, selecting primary school teachers. Um, there are problems with reliability because SJTs look at multiple constructs within each test. So each item will uh, consist of a number of different constructs and its uh, reliability can be um, lower than in other kinds of tests, although validity is usually higher, at least predictive validity. And there are problems with identifying stable factors because each item tends to have multiple constructs that are involved. Um, SJTs require judgment based on procedural knowledge. What should I do in this situation? And include general knowledge about costs and benefits of expressing various traits and specific knowledge about how to behave in particular situations. Um, this idea of implicit trait policy is a theory that proposes that we can gain insight into personality and characteristics by asking an individual to judge the effectiveness of responses to situations that have been designed to elicit targeted traits. So by testing procedural knowledge and implicit traits rather than self-reported behavioral tendencies, SJTs avoid the same level of social desirability that's inherent in personality tests. Um, Robert Sternberg suggests that um, SJTs also uh, measure um, uh, judgment and tacit knowledge, which has been debated at some length. But practical intelligence is what Sternberg calls it. So what do SJTs measure? Well, they measure cognitive ability. They're correlated with cognitive ability, with personality traits, and with tacit knowledge, judgment. And here's an example of an SJT with some of those factors. So everyone in your department but you has received a new laptop computer. Nobody said anything to you about the situation. What should you do? And here are some, uh, this is from a business setting. Um, assume it was a mistake and talk to your supervisor. Uh, take a computer from your coworker's desk. Um, confront your head of department about why you're being treated unfairly or asked to be transferred to a different school. You can see that or ignore it. You can see the multiple constructs that are measured in an example like this. So cognitive ability, um, so again, SJTs are, are related to cognitive ability and the ability to, to judge and decipher a situation uh, with the personality trait of conscientiousness, um, highly correlated with that, with emotional stability and with agreeableness. Now, so that's a run-through of, of A, the fact that teachers have an impact on students, B, that we want to select teachers to, um, to have a positive impact, and how we might be able to do it. The difficulty for those who um, study things like motivation or personality is how can SJTs reflect theory and research? There's a few approaches to this. An inductive approach, which is typically done in business settings where the theoretical applications are, are less interesting or less relevant, 
Um, so usually when um, somebody is creating a situational judgment test for a business setting, they use an inductive approach, bottom-up approach. They look at a job analysis, they look at the job, and they look at focus groups, job shadowing, etc. Generate critical incidents with subject matter experts and come up with scenarios that, um, scenarios that make sense. Um, another approach is a deductive approach, and this is where it's more interesting theoretically to start with theories uh, like basic psychological needs, mindset, self-efficacy, etc., and uh, attempt to create um, uh, critical incidents and uh, content from a deductive approach, or you can integrate um, the two approaches and have a guided critical incident approach. And we've been working with this, where we create scenarios with subject matter experts or expert teachers, and we give uh, probes like, can your students' basic qualities be changed through dedication and hard work, which is representing mindset theory, and coming up with critical incidents that re uh, reflect theory as well as uh, practice. So we've um, gone through this stage so far. We've done theory review, job analysis, item development, initial review, development of scoring key, test construction, piloting, feedback. And now we're at the stage of psychometric analysis and quality assurance and looking at extending to a primary setting. So we're working on that stage. Uh, in fact, in uh, this month, I'll be working with a group to look at uh, creating content and selection processes for um, early years teaching. Um, the job analysis has these parts. And the validation, we're looking not just at uh, uh, teaching outcomes in terms of um, classroom observations and so forth, we're looking at some of these factors as well, like interviews and retention and program and um, other factors. Um, these are the three initial domains that we've come up with, so empathy, communication, organization, planning, resilience, and adaptability. And we have some content, which I think I will let you read through, even though we're just down to the last two minutes. Teaching a lesson, I've asked the students to individually complete an exercise which requires them to fill in the spaces. You've talked the students through the exercise, answered all the questions they have asked. As the students begin the exercise, one student, Emma, starts to throw pens around, clearly distracting the other students. Uh, you know from the previous instance that Emma often becomes frustrated when she doesn't understand how to complete activities, and she often displays her frustration by being disruptive. What should you do? Uh, choose the three most appropriate actions to take or another scoring scenario is to rank the items. And there's various things that we ask Emma to do, or ask uh, people to take. And, um, right, this is the stages of where we're using ITT selection. So after a qualification check, usually at the shortlisting stage before interviews, and our challenges are such that uh, we're having to work in two different settings, and perhaps across national um, contexts as well and it's difficult for future research purposes to isolate the, in my case, motivation constructs that we want to uh, study in particular detail. Okay, I think that's probably enough. We're doing a little bit of next steps, and then I say thank you. Uh, thank you, Rob. There is uh, still time uh, for questions, so please go ahead.